records Smell the cover, read all the verses Tell me about your favorites on vinyl and vision Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. Here we are with episode 69, and today's very special guest is John Baumgartner. John is the uh, founding member, one of the founding members of the band The Tripes, uh, which uh, he is here to discuss with today because they have a uh, brand new reissue coming out on Pravda Records. Um, maybe you're familiar with The Tripes and the album Music for Neighbors. Uh, What you are listening to is the first track off of that album called uh, From the Morning Glories. At the end of the episode, I'll play a small segment of another song off of that album called A Plan Revised. John is an exceptional musician uh, hailing from New Jersey, the Halden area. He has been a part of a number of groups, uh, all kind of consisting of the same members, which we discuss. Uh, you know, uh, one of the more recent and still active bands is Speed the Plow. Some of you may know the band The Tripes because of the involvement of a couple of members of the band The Feelies. I am happy to speak with John about this album, kind of to you know, uh, set the record straight a little bit about the the band the tripes and the kind of the connection of the feelies because uh, if you look at um you know i think some people kind of associate the band the tripes with with the feelies because of those members having joined it for a brief period of time so uh, it was nice to be able to kind of get john's perspective on uh, on what that timeline looked like and uh what those bands kind of consisted of like the members that were in the band and uh how they got their start and uh, where they're at now and, uh, and about this new record, this new reissue, uh, which will be, in my words, uh, kind of a deluxe edition. There, this album has been reissued by Acute Records back in 2011, I think. 2012, possibly. Uh, 2011, I think. And, um, and that was a reissue of the record from originally released back in the 80s, early 80s, 85-ish, I believe. Um... So the band is celebrating their 40th anniversary, and to commemorate that anniversary, they are uh, releasing this record again. Uh, Pravda Records is releasing this record this time, and they are doing a kind of more of a deluxe version. The, uh, from what John has described to me in our conversation, there's going to be additional tracks, uh, additional live tracks, and um, not too clear on this. You're going to have to follow them. You're going to have to go to their Bandcamp site or go to PravdaRecords.com, I believe it is, to get more detailed information about these releases as they become uh, more available. Um, but there will be some additional tracks that have been unearthed, some live performances, uh, some tracks that the uh, the Tripes had not recorded 
back uh, in their uh, you know back in the '80s when they were kind of still still together. Um, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of additional new content, which is pretty cool. So um, very cool conversation to have with John today. He, uh, he chose the album, the band's Rock of Ages, uh, sometimes also known as Live from the Academy of Music in New York. And, um, and it's a fun one, a difficult one, but fun one. Uh, Rock of Ages is a hard album by the band because there's very little information about it anywhere. Um, it's not a comp- terribly popular record of theirs. It's a live record and it's a double album. So much like the last double album I, I covered, kind of had to whittle this down to a few tracks. Um, I go over those with John. And so if you're listening, you'll find out what that what those tracks are that we covered and uh it was very fun very cool conversation i was very thankful to have john on the show and i hope you enjoy it and if you do we ask that you please do all the things you do with the internet like share comment subscribe rate review uh those last two are the most important so please please do those we really really appreciate it and without further ado here is the show Hi there. Hi, John. How are you? Okay. Can you hear? Oh, okay. There I am. So just trying to keep up with all this nonsense. Journalists, music journalists go about things in all kinds of different ways these days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I'm completely new to this whole music journalism thing. I did not ever intend to be considered such. Okay. And uh, so it's been interesting. Like developing this whole theme of artists talking about their favorite things in, in music uh specifically like an influential record the, you know this choice it covers all the bases for me i think yeah in terms of being some of my favorite music and also being influential in a lot of different ways in the music i've pursued okay sure so um so the album you chose was uh, the band's rock of ages uh right. sometimes known as uh Live from the Academy of Music of New York, yes. right? That's right. 14th Street, the late lamented Academy. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious why you chose this record. I'm a huge fan of the band. I mean, I think they're one of the finest American rock groups um, ever. I mean, perhaps the Beach Boys give them a running in that. And there are a few others I might throw in Buffalo Springfield. And, but I've been a huge fan of the band because both of the songwriting, well, a lot of different factors. I mean, there are three singers, a lot of other really great, great bands have had a number of vocalists and they're usually working in kind of more traditional realm of harmony uh, which is not to say the band's vocalists don't, but uh, to me, their their voices are so incredibly distinct and convey emotional content of the songs in in radically different ways. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are things Richard sings you couldn't imagine anyone else singing. Uh, certainly. Uh, the same as with uh, Rick and and Levon. I mean, of course, uh, you know, 
I think the other two sort of seem to follow Levon's leads usually in, in creating vocal harmony. Hmm. Um, but three great singers and Garth, um, being a keyboard player, I mean, he is probably what sets them aside. I think Robbie's mentioned often how Garth joining the band changed the landscape for them completely. And, you know, I can't really think of an American, you know, an American band of that kind of note, you know, that has, that features a keyboard player. Certainly not one as wildly inventive and yet incredibly sensitive um, as Garth. Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and um, plus they know, have two. I mean, well, they, like Garth is yeah, the Richard keyboardist. Yeah, piano primarily. Um, right. But, you know, Garth on that Lowry concert, organ and all his paraphernalia uh i mean he you know used very idiosyncratic keyboard setups that yielded these phenomenal results uh, wasn't a b3 guy saw all the kind of dramatic and soundtrack music capability president lowry and then um, augmented it with a bunch of different things so yeah so Garth, the singers, the songs, clearly. And I guess uh, I was sort of focusing on them. Ordinarily, I probably would have selected Astral Weeks, um, but discussions of Van these days are kind of fraught with a lot of different baggage that I kind of wanted to avoid. Sure, understandable. Um, and then I couldn't pick, you know, it would have been one of the first two band albums, which are my two favorites. I couldn't decide on which. So I thought, and there was great music on stage fright, great songs on cahoots. So Rock of Ages, you know, kind of encompasses the music from those first four albums hmm. with a phenomenal horn section and arrangements by Alan Toussaint. And I happened to be at the second of the four nights that were recorded for this release. Oh, that's cool. Um, it was, I think, a Friday, Saturday. No, it was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I believe, was New Year's Eve. That They ended on New Year's Eve with, fortunately, I, unfortunately, I couldn't get tickets for that because Dylan played most of that show with them. Right. Yeah. But, I believe I was at the I was at the Friday night show with a bunch of friends from high school. I just turned seventeen years old the month before. Uh, mm -hmm. Had friends who had been driving for a while, and uh, one of them, their folks, had sort of an early version of like a camper van, which had a table and benches in the back of it. So he drove us into the city. I remember driving down 14th street, drinking beer, playing poker as we're, you know, starting to look for a parking space, probably smoking weed, whatever, but arrived in style. Yeah. And, um, cool. You know, a phenomenal show. So yeah, I mean, I have like a real pretty strong personal connection. Yeah. Okay. Album. That's funny. I was, I was actually curious of that because uh, knowing, I was assuming that, you know, you were of the age where maybe being at this concert was a possibility for you and, uh, and how cool that you, you were able to make it. it with that being said, you know, that you actually were, were in attendance for at least one of the nights. Uh, how, how did you perceive the record itself when it came out, uh, having been there for one night? Uh, you know, just magical. Um, 
you know, I, I you know, there, I'm sure there were people like me who were maybe greater music aficionados that would have researched. I'm sure you can find out which takes of the songs were used on which nights. Uh, you oh, know, right. That, in, that information has to be out there in the world by this point. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I would have no idea about that. But, I mean, the presence of the horn section, um, you know, and the, and the players they got, uh, you know, Howard Johnson on tuba and J.D. Parent on, on trumpet and who else I wrote down, Joe Farrell on saxes, all guys who I think just about, I don't know when Saturday Night Live debuted, but shortly thereafter, all the guys in this band's horn section were the, the players in the Saturday Night Live band. In fact, Howard Johnson, I think, was their first musical director. Oh, so, I mean, Alan Toussaint arranging and these, you know, home run hitting pro players from the city primarily you can't miss with that right, right. Um, the academy stage was i mean it had been an opera house so you know accommodating the six or seven piece horn section was no big deal right um you know it's just the right cast of characters and i mean the, the band at their finest um you know before well before the wheels really started to come off. <laughs> I think Both, directly before the wheels started to come off, actually. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I know some people that kind of knew them when living up in Woodstock. And, you know, Rick had some issues, early, and so did Richard, um, you know, substance issues pretty early on. So I think maybe personally things were starting to fragment a little bit anyway. And then... Hmm. Yeah, musically they did as well. And you're right, not too long after that. Right. So um, I guess you know, kind of peak period, really. Yeah, actually, I think that that's exactly what I learned about them in, in the research that I had done. Is that like, because they were intending to, to, you know, they had these dates set. Uh, and then they were in, they knew they were going to be doing the recording, obviously, for a live record. But, um, but they were intending to take a break kind of like right afterwards. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's almost a bit of a, you know, in terms of the various guest musicians they had, it's a bit, and, and the fact that it was a four-night residency at this, you know, kind of uh, classic old music house, um, a bit of a precursor to the last waltz, I guess, in a sense. Right, you know, yeah. Bringing it was. on a lot of other guests who, in that case as well, augmented their music and, you know, that's what this horn section was about. It, you know, it was augmenting, you know, the flavor of these songs that already existed there. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, well, John, I, I would actually, uh, we've been talking so much about the record that you chose. I, I wanted to get more, a little bit into uh, your own history uh, of, uh, as a musician yourself. Um, and I'm having you on the show because uh, I guess first and foremost, uh, essentially here to discuss the tripes because um, the, album uh, music for neighbors is being reissued by pravada records is it pravada records yes pravada. Um, they reissued it on cd and digitally and streaming um in april like early april uh, maybe late march um and then we're doing a vinyl gatefold grand old release and i think that's around october okay uh, 
So, and it happens to be our 40th anniversary year. Um, and uh, this is sort of an enhancement of a compilation that was done by Acute Records about 11 years ago, which compiled a lot of the, this music. But in the in intervening 10 years, inexplicably recordings of some of our live shows and demo recordings just started to materialize. People mm. found old tapes in the bottom of drawers and we started digitizing. Someone out of the clear blue sky sent a pretty good audience recording from a show we did at the bottom line in New York that was kind of a showcase show and you know sound was really phenomenal there so we had a whole bunch of new things and then the core members of the band um got back together about five years ago um just to record a few songs that were written back then but that we never had proper recordings of so we wanted to kind of do justice to a few things so we had a whole Passel of new material um, to, to yeah. you know, which accompanies this release. Okay. So it's bizarre how after 40 years, things just, you know, seem to come in over the transom like that, but great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so what, what is, so essentially uh, the difference between the acute release in uh, 2012 to, to the one of this year, is there, there's going to be additional tracks you're saying? Uh, yeah, I would say ultimately there are going to be probably 15 new tracks. Oh. We're in the process of recording again. The core members have gotten back together in the last few months to record again a few songs that we did back then that we never did proper justice to. Hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, four really brand new studio recorded songs in addition to these tracks from the bottom line which hadn't been on the acute weren't, weren't discovered before the acute release and someone has since sent us um, a digitized version of a house recording of a show we did in 1984 in maxwell's uh, which was the year um our original recording um which was called Music for Neighbors. Uh, no, it was called Ex The Explorer's Hold. A four-song EP was our first proper release. Right. Um, so someone, you know, found this live recording, and it's astonishing, not just because it's quite good quality, but there is so little murmuring and talking by the crowd, even in between songs, you know, and a lot of our songs build up from very delicate, kind of quiet beginnings mm. and uh, kind of grow exponentially in arrangement and new instruments coming in. I mean, I, I could not get over how quiet people were with these kinds of songs that started with this filigree in the beginning. And I, and I point that out because, I mean... You're a musician, you've gone to shows, you know, and anything in a club environment these days, uh, people just won't shut up. I mean, yeah. you know, 
this is kind of very delicate music and it was nice to see that kind of response to it. You know, with my later band, Speed the Plow, we have, you know, we're a six piece. We play kind of rock music. It's loud. Mm -hmm. And so the crowd only gets louder to compete with you. (laughs) You know, it seems, but this was really bizarre. And I mentioned it to a couple of the band members when we were listening to this. And somebody reminded me that in our early shows there and in a couple other clubs in the city, we played some shows at Folk City uh, that were being curated by Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango, an old friend of ours. Um, People would sit on the floor. I mean, this was a club, a rock club. I mean, there wasn't seating. There were some, you know, kind of bleacher seating along a wall, but People just spread out on the floor. And I think that is probably kind of what contributed to a little bit more attentive. Sure. Sure. You know? Uh, so yeah, there's, a, that's, I think another 10 tracks that we're going to put out sometime this summer, just to help promote the vinyl release in the, in the fall. Yeah. So, so a separate release, not in addition to, not like a combined deluxe packaging for. Uh, we, we don't know yet. Which okay. I mean, this has literally been uncovered about two or three weeks ago. Oh wow! Um, okay. We sent it to our engineer at the studio we usually work at to to kind of restore it, uh, and got that back. And uh, I heard heard things you know we didn't hear before. Right. So yeah, we we're we're gonna do something with it. Haven't decided on what yet. Okay, that's great. That's amazing. Um, and so now, John, at some point, the, at some point, James, the the well will run dry. I'm, I'm convinced of that. <laughs> well, you have plenty of other stuff to work off of too. This is just unique to this one thing because I mean, the Tripes is a, is a band that no longer really exists. I mean, is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's fair to say that the Tripes existed as a as a rehearsing, performing, recording entity from about 82 to 85, perhaps. So uh, mm-hmm. not a large, not a long stretch. Yeah. Um, but we, I don't know, we made a lot of good friends. We, I mean, it's fortunate, you know, we live, the town we live in is about 40 minutes outside the city about 30 minutes to Hoboken, which at that time in the mid eighties was a burgeoning music scene that, you know, unleashed a lot of bands on the world and the club Maxwell's that was sort of our home base there. Um, Being in Hoboken had the advantage of um, touring bands who were playing, you know, maybe some of the larger clubs in the city, you know, couldn't play competing gigs in the five boroughs. Hmm. You know, they couldn't play one night at, say, CBGB's and the next night at Max's. It, it didn't work that way. You know, there's some exclusivity, but they could skip over the Hudson River and play a show in Maxwell. So, I mean, we're talking everybody from Who's Who Do, the Minutemen, New Order. I mean, bands that came through that I saw there, Stereo Lab, I mean, just a phenomenal, I mean, a, a who's who of indie bands that became, gee, who the heck else played there? They're one of their first East Coast shows, uh, Nirvana. 
Oh, okay. One of their, their earliest East Coast, if not the earliest. Um, yeah, late, late so 80s. So it was just it was a great launching pad. And by dint of that, we got to play with a lot of, you know, national touring bands that were coming through. Uh, we played several times there and, and in the city with the Rain Parade from the West Coast and became very good friends theirs. And it, it afforded us a real opportunity. And the fact that several members of the Feelys were in the band certainly didn't hurt in terms of opening doors and things. Right. Yeah. Now, so that, that's something that I was a little bit confused on based on uh, the, the bio that I was given and uh, the research that I've done. The, it's incredibly the, confusing, James. Yeah, the timeline is seems a little skewed or a little just kind of incomplete. I feel. Um, you know what the thing is? It was it just it things overlapped in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Feelies, but their first album, Crazy Rhythms, had come out, and they were kind of the darlings of New York. Um, the cover of the Village Voice, you know, the best band in New York City. So and were playing everywhere there for quite a few years. Um, after the album came out, they, they, Bill and Glenn, the leaders of the band, became pretty disenchanted with the music business. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and backed away a bit. Um, they, they were working on um, the soundtrack for Susan Seidelman's um, film, Smithereens, uh, so they were pursuing other instrumental music at the time. And the Tripes was really a bunch of um, friends in this town, Halden, myself, my future wife, uh, another close friend from high school. And the Tripes began um, as uh, the, the goal was to put out one single and to get it placed on the jukebox in the local bar we hung out in. So, okay. That was our goal initially. I don't know how Bill and Glenn from the Feelys got wind of it. We knew them from high school as well. Bill went to school with us. Uh, and they, they became curious about what the heck we were doing. And uh, Glenn joined, Glenn was taking a break from guitar. So we joined the band as a percussionist drummer. And um, the tripe sound developed from there. Um, Okay. You know, in the meantime, they were still doing instrumental music, both for the film and some shows as the Willies, they call themselves. Okay. And then the Feelys percussionist Dave Weckerman presented some songs to us all that he had been writing. So we formed another band called Young Woo. Okay. Which, I saw that. Yeah, which the percussionist came out and he was the front man. So you, you're, you're not to be blamed if there's confusion on your end in terms of the bio. It's, it's, right. it's very incestuous. Um, we, we always felt like the specific music that we were pursuing with each band was just completely different. I mean, hmm. the songs Dave writes and wrote, uh, I could never dream of writing. You know, just stylistically we all felt these bands were, you know, completely separate units. Well, we did play a few shows as part of this series that I was, Ira was curating at Folk City 
with all three bands. And okay. the, re- the reception was, you know, one band opening for the other, right? Essentially, it was the same seven or eight people just switching up instruments. The people didn't change. Right. Um, we felt the music radically changed. Uh, we got a great, great reception, but at the end of the evening, I mean, if I heard once, I heard 20 times, well, it's just, you're all the same people, you know, why don't you just stay, you know, you do one long show. And I'm like, you know, if you don't kind of get that they're different, right? I don't know what I can tell you, you know? Yeah. Well, was, were songs predominantly written by specific members per, per project? Um, yeah, I mean, Willie's were, Willie's songs were Bill and Glenn, you know, the, the primary songwriters of the Feelies. Um, Speed, um, the Tripes became, I became the primary songwriter um, in the right. very, very early period. Our lead singer, um, a Turkish friend of ours, wrote lyrics, I wrote music, but after a while I started kind of writing all the music. And then Young Wu, as I said, was Dave Weckerman's vision, um, his originals, and uh, an eclectic group of covers that we do. Um, yeah. that really reflect his taste. So, huh? Okay. Now th- that's funny that you say that, though, and like, and, and maybe that some of the some of that um, kind of uh, contradiction that some of your audience members were feeling that you said that they came up to you and telling you about, like, why don't you just you know kind of just be in one band and just play all night long. <clears throat> it was um it's because some of the feel is similar i mean like you know listening to some of the music from the feelies that i was not f- completely familiar with and then into the tripes uh catalog and then even into some of speed the plow i was just like yeah there's similarities here and some of the way the songs are kind of structured like there's a little bit of a droniness to them like uh it's 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 probably a reflection of the fact that the you know the primary doesn't apply to young Wu that much but i could see the feelings for sure and speed the plow which i'm i've been the i think now brenda was in the band for a while she contributed a song and then i've been the primary songwriter for speed the plow so in the feelings case and the speed the plow and extending back to the later tripes um i think that any similarity is a reflection of um, our influences at the time and not just at the time, but, you know, what we were bringing to the to the party. I mean, you know, it goes without saying we're all huge um, Velvet Underground fans. Um, Bill and Glenn turned me on to uh, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and Terry Riley, minimalist sort of, yeah, drone-based artists um, mm. that impacted my songwriting a great deal. And I think that sort of their polyrhythms and all, all always figured into the Feelies music. Right. Okay. And they've always had two drummers, essentially. So, you know, rhythm is their, is their calling card. Um, and so I guess if there is some similarity, it's, it's for, from where we all came from. Um, hmm. you know, the, the, the tripes, I think were probably influenced, but we all shared a love of early Jefferson airplane and the band I always thought of as early Jefferson airplanes, English counterpart, Fairport convention. Oh, right. Yep. 
Yeah, so that, you know, that kind of stuff became an influence as well. So I, we're drawing from a pretty common well of music that we all liked. Yeah. Well, and now, um, if you don't mind telling me a little bit about your, your kind of early history in music, I mean, like growing up, uh, where did you grow up? Um, in Haleden, New Jersey. This is a, you know, I'd say a, a, it's a blue collar community verging on suburb now um, outside of Patterson, New Jersey, which is where the Great Falls of Patterson are, just to promote a local landmark. <laughs> okay. The first industrial city, um, actually, it was invented by Alexander Hamilton. Oh, you interesting. A little historical context. But um so we, I've lived here my whole life. I mean, my start in music as the dutiful son of two Hungarian immigrants, I took up accordion at the age of seven. Hmm. And actually, I stood with it for seven years. I, I remember when I hit 14, I'm like, no, no I, I'm out of this. I got to get out of this. This is not cool enough. No. And one, <laughs> but one, one advantage that, has served me through the years is that I learned how to read music. Okay. And like riding a bicycle, I've just maintained that even though I didn't play any music for a long stretch of time. Um, my, my future wife who I started dating was a, was a, a flutist, a woodwind player, uh, a performance major in college, um, classical training, uh, so my being able to read music has served us well as we've worked out some song ideas and stuff over the years. Um, but it wasn't until this, uh, this Tripe's Wacky single and the jukebox idea came up that I even contemplated doing anything with music. Um, Mark, who was a founding, Mark Francie, who was a founding member, um, played guitar in bands in high school at, you know, dances and stuff was in one band called, I remember I saw them box lunch, B A C H apostrophe S lunch. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Clever, clever bastard. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so he had a, he had a bit of that, you know, kind of teenage year, you know, rock and roll band doing covers experience that I, I didn't have. Okay. You know, so, um, so, so was yeah, the Tripes your first band? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. How yeah. oh, weird. Uh, I guess. And, well, so, yeah. and so when and did it, you start that band? Like, well, how old were you when you, when you started up? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it was, I think it was 82. So I would have been 28 already at that point. Uh, I was a journalism major at NYU. I was an editor of a, of a, of a county newspaper, a weekly newspaper. Um, I, we, Tony and I eventually got married, wanted to have a family. She was working in, uh, regularly in artists in the schools programs throughout the city. Uh, so we weren't headed for like any kind of career in music by any means. I mean, she was, but neither not not this kind of not rock and roll music right yeah um oh, and we were we were way behind everybody else that we knew i mean all the all the bands we eventually you know were friendly with you know we knew viola tango from the day they started um 
you know, they were a few years younger and weren't in that, you know, careerist settling down, you know, kind of thought process at that point. And by the time, you know, we were, we were requested to start doing some touring and stuff. Um, she was pregnant hmm. with our, with our child. So, uh, you know, in fact, we did, we played twice on, I don't know if you're familiar with the mountain stage show. It's out of Charleston, West Virginia. It's an, it's hmm. an NPR music program. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. On about 250 or 300 NPR stations. We played there twice. I forget the years, but the second time I remember she was very pregnant and couldn't make the trip. So had to arrange to, again, fortunately, having her classical background, all her parts were charted out. So they hired us a flutist from the Charleston Symphony to play to fill her, flute, her woodwind parts that night. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so I mean, we couldn't get around. I mean, we played, you know, New York, up to Boston, down to Philly, down to West Virginia. Um, that was about it. I mean, we didn't have the mobility. Uh, yeah. Pursuing career. You know, you, can't, you buy a house, it, the world changes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, the land of uh, touring and kind of uh, scraping by as a musician does not really suit that yeah it was wasn't available to us and to be honest with you because you know i in personally speaking because i came to it kind of later i was far from a teenager anymore i mean by the time the tripes ep came out i was 30 and it yeah. was the very first release you know um i mean i guess i i certainly regret you know i mean i hear stories from a lot of friends i know and you know their antics on the road in their youth and their follies and all. I, I kind of, I guess, regret it a bit, but I don't know, be, having been hit, having hit 30, I mean, driving around in a van, I don't care. Sleeping on floors, eh, by that point in my life, I don't know. Yeah, no, I hear you. That makes sense. Um, so uh, one thing I'm kind of curious about is that... Um, we were talking a little bit about the music of, uh, of the tripes and, uh, and the other projects that everyone has kind of been involved with. Uh, what kind of music do you consider this like genre wise? Cause it's kind tripes, of hard to I, nail down, isn't it? Tripes, I have no idea um, how to describe it. it it's funny because I was telling you about that recent live show that recordings that came to us from 84 yeah and i i threw them into my itunes and under you know it's got the title it's got the band name and then under whatever style it just said no category all the way down which i'm sure is just the default thing because i didn't enter it sure but i looked at it and i'm like yeah that's about right yeah um <laughs> Yeah, well, I, don't... I mean, because it's funny because I mean, I've, you know, doing the research, I've seen the the album on a few different uh, uh, platforms and all of which have a different genre that it's defining. It has some some as simple as pop, which that is not accurate. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. Uh, I, uh, I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. I mean, 
if you if you're familiar with a little bit of speed, the plows music, you know, whenever I have yeah. to enter that kind of style thing into some information on some platform somewhere, I usually pick like chamber pop or something like that because mm. I don't know we're we're we play rock and roll. We play have some serious rock and roll songs, but I think uh, the you know when you need one of those overall terms and th- that kind of terminology in and of itself is kind of unfair and limiting and, and all. Sure, sure, I agree. But with I that. wouldn't know how to you know quirky, eclectic, uh, quirky, and like even that. that sounds kind of frivolous. <laughs> um, and I don't think covers everything. Yeah, eclectic, I guess. I mean, that's kind of like all encompassing thing because it just kind of makes it a little bit of everything which it kind of is. So, uh, well, that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's confusing to you too. I mean, it's, it, it's just interesting music and, and I'm definitely intrigued by it. Um, so I'd like to kind of touch on some other things, uh, based on what I've seen of your career, it seems that, um, there are no hard feelings between, uh, like Mercer and million considering that they were part of the tripes for, for a period of time, because they had gone on left, going back to the feelies and, so forth, but it seems like you've you've maintained uh, a relationship with them throughout, from then all the way till till now, right? Doing pro- anything from production to artwork, even. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you know, when I, when I use the term earlier, you know, all the all the different personnel and all these different interlocking bands and how it's incestuous. It's it's kind of it's it's family. I mean. I mean, we all literally have grown up and grown old, <laughs> grown old at this point um, together. Hmm. Uh, everyone wound up having families and, you know, eventually getting some sort of other kinds of jobs. Uh, we watched their kids grown up. I mean, we've been at weddings. We've been at all kinds, you know. No, I, you know, initially... I always knew, I mean, there's no way the feelies were going to walk away from what they had initially and opportunities, opportunities were always there. Um, They were being encouraged uh, to get back into things. And I, I mean, I like to think that maybe they're kind of hiatus with the tripes um might have informed them their music a little bit perhaps um you know the glenn wrote the undertow for the tripes and they wound up covering it on the second album after they came back with like only life um Mm. and you know a lot of people have commented on i mean if you listen to crazy rhythms i mean it's just groundbreaking and it is just propulsive and it is like nothing you had heard at that point at all oh yeah yeah i listened and to it became sure. incredibly influential and by 86 with um the good earth as the title might suggest and you know the passing of some years and whatever um, might suggest that, that, you know, I've always seen these re- reviewers or people writing about their careers, you know, entering their pastoral phase and that sort of thing. Well, you know, yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm going to see them play in Brooklyn next weekend, and I know it's going to be three hours of blistering paste rock and roll, and there'll be a little pastoral in there somewhere. Um, 
but you know, so they've got a pretty wide range, I think. But yeah, I kind of like to think that maybe we had a little influence on them. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, that whole overlapping that you had mentioned earlier, as far as just like the the comings and goings of members, um, I, I assume so because they what so every album that they've recorded prior to their debut came after they had already joined the tribes and since left Yeah, had, had left. And, and yeah. well, like getting back to my point, I, I mean, I think I was aware at all times that, you know, eventually Bill and Glenn were going to pursue the feelies. There were just too many opportunities available to them. Um, the one uh, fallout was that they took our rhythm section right. with us because Brenda and, and Stan had been, you know, playing that's later tripes is where we kind of you know the chamber pop sort of aspect started entering my mindset as a songwriter i guess and because brenda's voice and tony's voice were just extraordinary together um her her style as a bassist is incredibly inventive and stan who's my brother-in-law now and, and well has been for many many years uh, is one of the best rock drummers out there, um, and mm. and not just straight rock. I mean, he brings a lot of swing, and uh, you know, so that was the toughest thing for me. Um, you know, losing those uh, bass player, that drummer, and her voice. Uh, you know, right. was, it was a tough pill to swallow for a while. So. As we were starting up Speed the Plow, we were playing with tapes. We were playing with guest drummers. We were really just feeling our way through. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Interesting. Um, so, but anyway, getting back, no hard feelings. Yeah, no, no I, figured, feelings. I figured as much I considering. Mean, any, you know, I mean, in the studio, if you've been going at something for 12 or 14 hours, there could be some... You know, Glenn and, Glenn and Bill as producers were, were, they knew what they wanted. They had a really clear vision of what they wanted. So, you know, there'd be a little bit of this at times, but that's always the case in a band. Um, but no, we've stayed really super close and have collaborated on a lot of side projects over the years. And if anything, everybody's mellow, mellowed more. Nobody remembers any of the, you know, fallouts. Any of the, you know, any of the fallout, any of you know, fallings out we may have had. I mean, you don't even remember that, right? Okay, just like you said, family. I mean, you know, things come and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And kids have become close. Uh, you know, I mean, Mar- Mark's kid and my kid wound up in Speed the Plow for. A good four year stretch. I mean, my son still plays with us, but Mark's son Dan was our bassist, and his son Ian was our drummer for about four years, did a few albums with us. So mm-hmm. cool. that part of Speed the Plow was total family. I mean, literally. Yeah. You're literally. Mark yeah. and his two sons, and my wife and I and our son. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, I'd like to move on to, to talk about the album a little bit more. Uh, what I do is I typically kind of go down the track listing of the record and, and kind of discuss a, a few points uh, of the album and, uh, and, you know, based on the songs. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, you chose what is a double record, which is difficult. 
And I actually, you, I almost got a heart attack when I first saw it because I was the only copy of this record that I have ever had in my possession was the triple cut co- the triple album. Yeah. So I'm, I was just I'm like, strictly the first double album. Sure. Sure. I've, I've got it in my collection. I didn't get that. When was that reissued? Like 2006 oh. or something like that. I really don't know. There are and so I, many different I, copies. Yeah. I saw, I, I did a little YouTube research just in prep and stuff. And I'm like, Wait a minute! Up on Cripple Creek wasn't on the the set, but I guess there were probably seems like ten extra songs that had been recorded that they probably figured, well, they sound good enough. We could put those on. I, I mean, I think that it's, they have since gone on to release every night, like almost the entire performance oh, as, a, as a separate, as like a whole box set. Uh, I think that they've released everything at this point, but the copy that I had was like, I think it may have been from the eighties. Um, I remember the, the green, the lime green capital labels on those records and it was a triple album. So I was like really scared. I was just like, Oh my God, am I have, do I have to cover a triple record? <laughs> no. Yeah. First, well, the original. Right. Right. And so the last show that I did was a double album as well. It was, you know, it was Rolling Stones uh, exile in main street. And so to do myself the favor for that, I, I just kind of cut it down to eight songs and so I chose a few songs off this, off the double album, the original release. Um, and I'll tell you what that list is if you care to, to kind of just follow along. And so you kind of, and I'll, and I'll offer you the same courtesy. Because um, I know that when I speak with people sometimes about a record, they obviously like have a favorite song or so forth. So I'll go over this list. And if a song that is important to you or is, uh, you know, kind of has a special place in your heart, isn't we're not going to cover it i'll go ahead and we'll add it to the list even if i'm not prepared for it okay sounds fair sure okay so we were going to start off with the the second track don't do it Mm -hmm. i wanted to do king harvest has surely come excellent uh stage fright the night they drove old dixie down across the great divide this wheels on fire Okay. Rag Mama Rag. Uh, the Weight. And then the last song, uh, I Don't Want to Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes. Um, yeah, I might ask you to... Could we, re- could we sub out a couple? Are you open to that? Uh, maybe one. <sighs> well, I need to include the genetic method. Okay makes sense all right so that should probably come after rag mama rag before the weight then uh the last one you had suggested was the uh, cover right yeah the rock and roll shoes yeah can yep. we s- substitute genetic method for that oh yeah sure now how much am i going to remember about all these songs <laughs> <laughs> it's quite all right. Uh, you, you'll you'll get you'll get a feel for what I do here uh, very quickly, and uh, what you remember may not have anything to do with it. <laughs> okay. All right. So first track we're doing is "Don't Do It." So don't do it. Um, 
So this is a, a cover uh, famously performed by Marvin Gaye and also The Who. Um, kind of a simple kind of, I, I don't know what to call it exactly, uh, considering the, the lineage of the covers that have, uh, that have been done of it. But it's a, kind of a simple trope of like, uh, you know, baby, don't do it. Don't, don't leave me. Don't break my heart type thing. Yeah, kind of a typical Holland Dozier Holland kind of composition. Uh, it's got that little bit of a backbeat funk to it that mm -hmm. I guess comes out of their songwriting. That uh, it's just seemed to me like a perfect number to kick it off. Although it's probably the least, last thing you'd think of to did, kick did off they... this whole. I don't know if they did in the show, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, yeah, the one that you went to, you don't remember? Yeah, I've never, yeah, that's another thing I've never researched is like set list to compare it to what was right. eventually okay. wound up on the album. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, I mean, the first time I dropped the needle on it, yeah, that was perfect kickoff. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great opener for the. It's sort, of, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's got this kind of rambling kind of aspect right in the beginning until like rhythmically everything sort of gels. I mean, which is rather quickly, but it's got a nice little looseness to the opening. Right, right. Probably kinda, they chose it. Yeah, it kind of really kind of uh, spotlights the band's ability to kind of be a little funky and be kind of like this, this popping band you know yeah 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 so um so the context of the song like i was saying kind of like hokey uh lovey-dovey stuff for the most part um you're a married married man you were telling me and uh your wife is mm -hmm. tony tony yeah and she plays in speed the plow correct played okay. in the tripes as well and oh and she did play in the tripes okay I, I didn't i didn't find her name on credits that i was looking at but uh, it would be tony peruda Oh, that's maybe why it threw me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she went by her maiden name for first couple albums. All right. So, um, so this song is pretty clearly a sad love song, kind of. I mean, it's a kind of upbeat, happy song, but it's just kind of a tragic song. Uh, essentially, pleading with his baby to please don't do it, which is break his heart. Um, I've experienced being in a band and being with somebody in a band, uh, which can be difficult at times. Uh, how how has that worked out for you and Tony? Uh, the the only thing really that's been difficult about it um, have been in times like in our career, like we were talking about earlier, the the earlier days, and then morphing into Speed the Plow when when we could have toured, but you know, unlike most bands, most bands, you know, the Feelies didn't have married members in the band. Right. You know, the fact that both of us were in the band just precluded a lot of stuff. Right. And then especially um, having children, because then yeah, somebody has to stay it, home. You know, and I'm not, it doesn't suggest it created, it created any friction or anything like that, but um, it was the one downside of it. I mean, the upsides of being involved with someone with the kind of musical acumen she has to kind of help realize my sometimes stumbling, bumbling musical am ambitions have mm -hmm. uh, been invaluable. And, and, you know, we've kind of gotten to the point, we put out this album um, just last fall called Before and After Silence, which 
were a dozen or more songs um, that we recorded during COVID. We had started doing, we, the band was on hiatus in late 1919 and started um, recording some new ideas in early 2020 when boom, lockdown. But we had enough, we had four or five ideas that were fleshed out enough that, you know, I saw that this was going to last us a long time. Mm-hmm. And I knew a lot of musicians, uh, a lot of the indie folks I know that do touring and do a lot more performing, their lives came to a complete standstill. Right. So I started sending songs out to people. Um, I, the first one was to um, a, a singer named um, Mesa Jalad from this band Safar. They're from Beirut. And we'd happened to play a few shows in the city with them in 2018, 2019, and just fell in love with their music. And it was sort of like a two-way street to the point where we started booking shows together whenever they were going to be in the States. And I sent one of these first songs to her, and she just brought it to life in an incredible way that and sent back these vocal parts that just blew our minds and, but really thought, you know, made us think this is a really good way to go about things. You know, while mm-hmm. we can't get together, we couldn't even get together to rehearse. I mean, right. Much less record. So I started sending things out to more people, sent some ideas out to Brenda you know, who lives in Pennsylvania. She contributed some things sent some stuff out to Matt Puichi, the guitar player from the Rain Parade out in California. He sent some things, sent stuff out to Tara Key of Antietam, got fantastic guitar tracks back from her. So hmm. we were able to put together an album. Um, I'd recommend to your listeners to check it out. Um, it's it's really different kind of music, really different. Um, yeah, what was that album called again? Before and After Silence. Yeah, I, I think I listened. title. Before and After. Hold on a second. Yeah, the, Eno, the Eno album is Before and After Science. Um, so we did a little play on that and Before and After Silence. I mean, everything was silent for a while. So. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, I encourage you to look at it and check it out. There's a lot of different kind of music on there. Um, it, it's And getting back to Tony, uh, it was, you know, I really felt like a. Com- we haven't collaborated as intimately on creating music uh, as we have on that album. And I, I think it's, to me, it's setting kind of a bit of a direction for the future. Um, yeah. Which is not to say I don't want to get together with people anymore, but I, I have... We're doing a Young Woo show um, in the middle of June, in fact, um, in Hoboken on the waterfront in Frank Sinatra Park. Oh, cool. Which I agreed to because it's outdoors. Mm-hmm. His cases are spiking here again. It's outdoors and you've got the skyline in the evening as your backdrop. So oh, there's cool. no finer setting for it. But otherwise, I'm still... I've got bands, I've got friends in bands that have tried to get out there, been chomping at the bit, and I've seen so many tours wrecked because somebody tests positive. Right, yeah. Um, 
clubs are not requiring masks. There's really no check of even vaccine status anymore. Uh, and bands are getting sick. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard still, of it myself. Yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. It's still rather unnerving. I hope I answered that question though. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the next song. Uh, King Harvest. So yeah, that's a kick-ass song. It's a great one. I mean, it's just one that's always kind of like stuck in my mind, uh, at, you know, since an early age, like probably when I first heard that, uh, you know, that uh, self-titled album that this song is on. Um, I guess the uh, the easy question here is, uh, are you a union man all the way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. So, I mean, yeah, I'm a teamster. Are you? Well, the Patterson Musicians local is affiliated with teamsters so it's it's really the music union oh cool in Patterson. um yeah but they happen to have a teamster affiliation which to me it seems like a bizarre thing to say to somebody i'm a teamster right i was just and like do you, what trucks are you driving trucks what are you doing <laughs> the getaway trucks yeah that's interesting wait so so you are a unionized musician uh, yeah, I played music on a couple of commercials. Um, funny, I played music on a few commercials that were directed by this guy, Jeff Boyersig, who used to live in Montclair. He went on to direct a number of major films, a, a really well-received documentary on Daniel Johnston, oh, okay. a more recent documentary on the boxer Chuck Wepner, the New Jersey boxer. Okay. I think won a few awards, but he used to direct commercials, and I played keyboards and I think accordion on a couple of Jello commercials. Oh, interesting. I don't know when this would have been, maybe early '90s, I guess. Sure. So, had to become a union member to get my pay. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get benefits and all that stuff through that as well? Uh, no, no, no. Are you kidding me? No, oh, okay. I am just, I have the lowest level of membership possible. And by this point with what I'm getting in whatever residual check may occasionally come in. No, it's, it's just a formality. I see. see. So as a unionized musician, I mean, if you were like uh, doing constant work, like in film and like TV commercials and ads and so, so forth, that would kind of, rack up for you more so than it is now uh yeah 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 definitely but uh, but i should i should hasten to mention here that when you ask if i'm a union person yes my mother was a seamstress in uh, in a in a shop and dressmaking shop in patterson she was the a member of the uh, a proud member of the uh, international ladies garments workers union Okay. Uh, and my father was a bricklayer, um, and he was a member of the masons and stonemasons and bricklayers and laborers union. Oh, okay. So yeah. were union people, oh, since their lives commenced in the United States in the early fifties, they've been union people. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I'm married to Tony's a teacher. So 
Since teachers and union. Many teachers in my family who obviously are all union members. Right, right. I should say they're public school teachers, so obviously they're union members. But mm-hmm. yeah, union here. Okay. And then, so did this song always kind of strike a nerve with you, like as, as you're growing up and hearing it um, with that history, know, you know, knowing now that, you know, your parents uh, were union unionized workers as well. And so obviously they were pretty much pretty pro union, I would imagine. Yeah. I kind of understood what the song was about. I don't know that, you know, that kind of union connection informed it as much as, you know, my attraction to this is the vocals on it. And, it, it's a song that seems like it could have been written in the 30s. Um, right. It's describing very, you know, kind of, it's a sort of Steinbeck sort of landscape that it's operating in. Um, you know, that's kind of what I more thought of it. You know, it's why that first um, band album was... I guess maybe they were like a bigger, better version of the Tripes because when that album came out, there was nobody doing that. There was nobody doing that kind of music. King Harvest is emblematic of that kind of sense of America, of an American past. Right, right. I mean, the band is kind of uh, credited as like one of the founders of, uh, you know, the Americana genre, if that's what you want to call it. And and, and they're all mostly Canadian. I mean, Levon Helm was the only one that was a, a true American and a Southerner at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think they all gleaned what Levon was bringing to the party. And absolutely. I think you're, you're uh, you correct. Know. And I think Robbie being the savvy guy, he was realized that, you know, that kind of sense of American historical music and, uh, you know, there, there's something there that resonates and there's some, you know, prime turf to be plowed there and which he right. did right right and obviously i mean who's written more american songs or, or songs that would be identified with america than this canadian dude yeah it's true no that, that's a very big point actually and and uh it's something that i didn't necessarily know until i went into the research for for this album you know I yeah yeah I'm, I'm 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 you know i was surprised when you remind me because i you know i I, I guess it was that, and I guess backing Ronnie Hawkins and, you know, doing all the Chitlin Circuit stuff that they did initially, is right. the Hawks, and uh, that, I'm sure, informed Robbie's songwriting sensibility a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll actually get into a little bit of that uh, as we progress. Um, right now, we should move on to the next song, Stage Fright. Deep in the heart of the So there have been some criticisms criticisms of this song, stating it's a song about the uh, pitfalls of fame and fortune, uh, and also uh, a little bit of uh, a history of the band itself. I think both could be right, considering the story mentioned in the band documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've watched that documentary or or read sure Robbie Robertson's book, Testimony. No, I haven't read his book yet, no. Okay. Um, it's, it's about his stage fright, though. It's about his stage fright. I mean, you, you, he touched upon his stage fright. 
Yeah, yeah. In the documentary, it's pretty it's uh, pretty detailed as uh, how they were supposed to do that debut performance at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. And no, he it didn't really say that he had stage fright. It said that he was actually sick, like he was actually like fluish. Yeah, you know, I did see that documentary somewhere along the lines because yeah, I do remember that scene. In fact. Right. And so he was hypnotized. They actually had a hypnotist come backstage and hypnotize him. And it actually kind of worked and he was able to go on. Yeah. I, you know, if he drove that song from it, it's, uh, it was useful. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. Um, and I think it, you know, it kind of, it's, it's larger than just that in my mind. I mean, thinking about the lyrics, it, it's, Kind of not just about a guy going on a stage with a spotlight. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, into a situation where, you know, a pressurized situation mm -hmm. where a lot depends on you. Yeah. Uh, The the line that sticks out to me, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to quote it correctly because I'm just kind of going off my memory, was that uh, kind of towards the end of the verse, I believe, it says, but then when he's done, he wants to start all over again. You know, it's just like, as soon as Pick you're done yourself performing. yourself up and dust yourself off, yeah. Um, but it, like, it's just like refreshing and as like a, almost like a relief that you've performed, you've done it, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want to do it again because, you know, performing yeah. is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, and I'm sure there were a lot of nights on long tours when it was more like, oh, I got to do this again. Right. You're going to fly to another city tomorrow and do it again tomorrow night. Right. Yeah. But I, I just, I just connected with that because I was, just, I've, I've experienced that myself, you know, having been on some tours, okay. You know, a little bit in my life. Um, it was always that thing where it was just like, we're done playing. It's just like, Oh man, I can't wait for the next show. Even though we have to drive 13 hours or God knows sleep where, and who knows what can happen, you know? I, I, yes, I, I can relate that very much. Um, you know, again, we didn't do a lot of touring, but we did the number of weekends where, you know, three nights, four nights, maybe in a row, three, maybe the most for us. But um, yeah, if the first night didn't go well, I always liked the fact that, you know, you got tomorrow. You yeah. Know, tomorrow right. you can make it a little bit better. Um, whereas if you got kind of a one-off gig and it's not quite what you wanted, like, fuck, I can't, you know, get back and, you know, exonerate myself until the show two months from now and, you know, the energy will be gone. Right. Now, uh, so now what is your experience with stage fright? Have you ever had it, suffered from it? Um, no, no, I can't say that I really have. I, no, I, I, you know, kind of always felt, you know, comfortable with the people I was surrounded by. I guess that probably had a lot to do with it. Hmm. Um, you know, getting back to the beginning with the tribes, um, you know, when we first started performing out, uh, you know, if, if we didn't have Bill and Glenn and the experience, the years of experience they had had doing this, I mean, you know, things were kind of second nature to them. And it was mm-hmm. even like, you know, you ought to think about doing this or, you know, something as simple as, you know, Mark noticed Mark, who's our guitar player, when Glenn eventually started playing guitar with us, you know, had some of his picks like taped on to his mic stand in front of him 
case he lost the pick. And, you know, so next show, Mark, you know, had the little thing with the picks on it. Like, just little shit like that, you know? Right. Little things you pick up. Dealing with sound people, I, I mean, that's a whole other world. I mean, especially in the New York club scene at the time, which was very, very busy and vibrant. Right. Uh, you could get chewed up and spit out pretty easy. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> All right. Well, well you get a feisty sound man who, who's like, so you've got what? You've got a drummer, you've got a separate percussionist, and we're going to have flute and clarinet and sax and two guitars and keyboards and accordion. Really? When, you know, he just mixed yeah. two guitars, bass, and drums before right. your set. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, That's I've seen the look of horror on sound men's faces. Right. Yeah, it's a challenge. It is. I mean, that's a lot to take on, especially when you're kind of expecting, you know, a rock band to show up. Yeah. I always admired, you know, there'd be some guys, usually like some of the younger folks, including some ladies that had gotten into this sound reinforcement game in the 2000s. Uh, you know, some of them would view it as an adventure, like, uh, you know, sure. bring it on, you know? Right. What do you need me to do? Like, you, you're going to have fluid and I need to have a separate mic and, you know, yeah, let's do it, you know? Right. That was always, like, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate people that take uh, take pride in their work and accept a challenge as opposed to being complacent and being like, well, no, I didn't sign up to, to you know, do sound for an orchestra. I'm here for rock <laughs> yeah. bands. <laughs> All right, well, let's just move on to the next song. Uh, the Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. All right, so this is the controversial one, right? <laughs> I, I guess it is now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, um, like, just writing out that title when I was writing this, I, I all of a sudden realized what some of that controversy was about, just like putting the words together and kind of like actually saying it kind of clearly to myself. Um, but I don't really agree with it, considering um, considering that this song was written by a Canadian and also a, a partial Native American. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess you have to parse things all different ways these days. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's tough keeping up. I mean, yeah, you could see it in this song um, where there would be issues. I mean, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess that would qualify him well enough to have written it. Yeah, well, Isn't I mean, I think that it's from the... Well, it's from the standpoint of appreciation. You know, I mean, like, as we were kind of like we're touching on earlier, like... I think that um, Robbie Robertson clearly had an appreciation for the South, uh, considering one of his band members was a Southerner himself, was an Arkansas, Arkansas. How do you say that? Arkansanian. <laughs> he was from Arkansas, and um, you know, and he really admired him. He really appreciated him, and they had a a very special bond. Uh, and so I think that he really took it on writing the song as a, as a um, trying to pay homage to a degree to, to the South. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, clearly because he had 
a lot of influence from Southern music. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably most reflected in that it's maybe the most story song they have. I mean, it, it really endeavors to to tell a tale unlike some of the others and don't do it obviously but even some of theirs king harvest is another is trying to tell a story this is right. a, like trying to tell a little bit more of a linear story in my mind and, and a very american story that's yeah the thing. and i mean if it's going to include you know if it's going to include some unsavory things then you know isn't that what we're talking about these days the fact that there was a very unsavory past that we need to acknowledge mm-hmm. and some people don't want to yeah I, I suppose so i mean not quite sure I, how that fits into this but yeah i mean and there, there's you know it, it's i think that war is fairly ridiculous uh, under any circumstance uh to think that we have as a country fought ourselves at one point and possibly might again <laughs> considering yeah. how things are looking these days um you know it's i think it's actually probably a little bit more pertinent now than it has ever been and it's not to be looked at as something that was focusing uh focusing attention to something that was negative necessarily you know no i think it's focusing more on the loss and that loss revolves around what was being attempted to do which was continue enslavement of people and Hmm. so it's uh that period being lost, which is a good thing to get it behind you, sort of. Yeah. And and yet we we're not. Um, you know this nonsense about critical race theory. Uh, you know, it's if you know you you you're criticizing critical thinking. Isn't that what you know education is supposed to be? Um, right. Not to mention the fact that the shit isn't really being taught in grammar schools, but nonetheless, yeah, the issues presented in the song, yeah, resonate it's still and sadly in yeah in many ways. Yeah, yeah, and, and but I think if nothing else, I mean, it's a beautiful song. I think that uh, the composition that Robbie Robertson was able to create, uh, both musically, melodically, and lyrically, in this song is amazing i mean it's just a masterpiece really no musically it is i mean certainly i had i leave on strum part i mean those roles those crescendoing roles at the end really sound like uh whatever the union army marching across a field in a way you know it conquers that sort of little bit of military aspect to it right yeah it's 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 brilliant really um, so on a little bit of a lighter note, um, now I, we were talking, I was kind of mentioning a little bit about the song and how, you know, I see it as Robbie Robertson's kind of, uh, tribute to the South, uh, through his band, mem- band member, Levon Helm as a Southerner himself. So considering we were kind of talking about some of your relationships with some of your band members as well, and, uh, and the relationship between Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm, um, do you have any like brotherly bonds like that, uh, like that of like Robbie and Levon? Um, yeah, probably, probably Mark, our guitar player. I mean, we go back the farthest. Um, 
we pursued music together in the kind of middle of our lives out of the clear blue friggin' sky and mm -hmm. still doing it 40 years later. Well, wow. um, yeah, I, I mean, Mark, uh, leading among them. I mean, he's been my co-conspirator through this whole game and has seen all the comings and goings, including his own going. Um, after the second album we did with his kids in the band, he started developing hearing problems that became pretty significant. And uh, it was recommended for him not to play in a club and not to play in a rock band. Oh. So he left for, for several years. Um, we had someone in Speed the Plow, Ed Seifert, really great guy, good singer, good guitar player, stepped in, learned Mark's parts. Um, so that was pretty seamless. Um, but I, it was at the hiatus point that I was mentioning at the end of 2019 into 2020, I had some song ideas before COVID reared its head, started recording them. And the first person I called was Mark, um, hmm. you know, to come over and play some guitar parts. Um, and then of course my son to play some guitar parts and my wife to sing and play some woodwinds and yada, yada. And, um, so, you know, I went to him first and I, and I'm super glad I did because it, um, he had joined us for these two songs we had recorded in 2017. It was, it was kind of touch and go, you know, he had to be careful in wearing headphones and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but it was still kind of removed. And when this started in 2019, 2020, we found ways, um, his son, Dan, who was our bass player, um, is a brilliant recording engineer, studied at the Tisch School at NYU with the Clive Davis studio complex there. So um, he's our, you know, tech guru when it comes to this. He was able to find ways to accommodate Mark, Mark's hearing problems when it, when it came to recording and oh, cool. even some live play. But so we've been able to pursue that now. And it's so Mark, Mark's the one. Okay, cool. Uh, well, let's move on to the next song, Across the Great Divide. All right, so yeah, this song is a tricky one. Uh, I've seen many different interpretations and criticisms. Uh, at the time of this recording, at the time of the recording of this song for the second album, it could be said that metaphorically there was a great divide geographically because of the traveling across the country from uh, California or from Woodstock, New York to California, or Robbie Robertson's own personal heritage being half Mohawk Indian uh, and half Jewish uh, Ashkenazi from Canada writing songs about the Deep South. Oh, Ashkenazi. I wasn't aware of that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, with this being said, well, personally, what kind of uh, division do you witness or has the most impact on you now? It's a division in our country. Um, yeah. 
it's uh, it's the spreading division it's and it's the worsening of the division it's the uh it's kind of what Trump set loose on the world, I think, or on the United States. Um, I don't know whether it's better to know that there were so many in our midst that shared his views and his values um, and the ultra-right views and values. Um, I don't know whether it's better to know that they were all there or you know, hmm. a part of me is appalled that there are so many that cling to lies and and that look like they're going to continue to cling to lies. Um, yeah, James, that's that's a divide right now. It's <laughs> like there's nothing else on my mind. And I was sincerely hoping when he was not reelected that, you know, I was going to be able to stop paying attention to the news as much as I was. And right. Just take a uh, break for a little while. Huh? Reading on what was happening every day and what abhorrent behavior and what aberration was going on hourly. I thought, wow, man, I can shut my radio and turn, you know, get off the internet. I can, you know, yeah, I don't know. You can't, I mean, you've got to be even, God, with the events of the last couple of weeks, you, you know, I, you have to be even more vigilant now than ever. Yeah, it never stops. Which really. means you have to be more aware of what you're up against now than ever. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sorry for getting on such a heavy topic. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, that's okay. Yeah, I, it's, I don't it's, mind it's, talking about it. What's that? I don't mind talking about it. I, you know, I, I, you know, I normally don't get into these conversations with family and stuff because, fortunately, we're all coming from the same place. So, talking about any of this sort of so these social issues or world political issues, mm-hmm. it's preaching to the choir. Yeah. Well, thankfully, so, you know, yeah, because it's yeah. It's even been... at Thanksgiving and holidays, I don't have to worry about old Uncle Clem with his Fox News opinions bringing the house down. Right. It's you know. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's a little more civil than that. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to the next song. Uh, this wheels on fire. Rick get a co-write on this. Yeah, with Dylan, huh? Yeah. Uh, one of the things... Dylan gave him the co-write when Robbie wouldn't, I guess. Yeah, Robbie held very tightly to his uh, to his writing credits. He really didn't want to share it with anyone. No, and you know, you're getting back to when you were mentioning the, the set being released of each night of yeah. this Academy of Music's run as separate products, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking right away, well, it ain't going to help Rick or Richard or Levon anymore. Um, Garth is in a assisted living facility up in New York state, Hudson mm-hmm. Valley, because he took a turn for the worse when his wife Maud died. I think it was last year. Oh, so uh, I, you know, I'm, I've been sending him some messages on social media and nothing's, acknowledged but people have put out a 
some band fan pages put out a call like Garth's kind of alone and oh. appreciate some messages. So people oh, wow. started doing that and sending them, sending them food trays and stuff. So I hope so. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize he was in such bad shape. Yeah. I, you know, he's a pretty old dude. I think Ryan, he was the oldest of them, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He certainly held himself as music, such. Their music teacher. Yep. Hmm. Special special place in your heart, not not just being a keys person, but teacher. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, a quirky dude, though. I mean, for sure, uh, the inventiveness of his music came from a really deep, deep place that I, I couldn't aspire to. I mean, it, yeah, it was a place beyond the normal kind of logics you kind of bring to music and songwriting and all, right. Yeah, well, and let's a song later on kind of gets at that. Yeah, I was going to say let's hold on to that for the genetic method. <laughs> um so this song, I mean this song is weird. So, I mean, I really kind of dug into the lyrics on this one and it's it's very Dylan-esque, you know. Uh-huh. Um So, let's see, the main lyric to take away, I suppose, would be if your memory serves you well. So, uh how's your memory serving you these days, John? Hanging on. Um, <laughs> we're, we're finding, I think I may have intimated a little bit earlier, we're finding in going back over this 40 years of material from these bands that yeah, there's a lot uh, There's a lot that we don't remember um, when it comes to some specifics and sometimes something like a, a tape like we got or, you know, live recording pops up and you're like, what? Right. No, I don't don't remember the show at all. And, huh. uh, yeah. and some of those turn out to be the best shows to have done. So what does that mean? It's just there's how much water bra- under the bridge. How much can your brain really hold? It's, it's just like a computer. It's only got so much storage space. You got to like delete some files every now and then. Yeah. And these days, I mean, the last 10 years, we've been packing so much info into those brains. Right. In front of these screens that it's like, I guess some of it's got to wedge other things out of the way. Yeah. I need an external drive. I just got to drill something <laughs> like right in here. That would be great. <laughs> so uh, what's a favorite memory from the time of the recording of the Tripes album that is being reissued? Can, uh, do, you, do you have? I guess the original recording section, sessions in a studio called Mixolydian in Boonton, New Jersey. Uh, our first experience in a real studio we did do a demo recording at this pretty crummy little studio i forget where union new jersey of the song plan revised that we later re-recorded because it didn't turn out well and it was one of those you know getting back to sound men and clubs mm-hmm. you run into the same thing with engineers and studios oh sure the guy had no idea what the hell we were doing and like I said, Bill and Glenn had very specific ideas on how they wanted to do things, you know, including maybe recording a bell part in the bathroom. Do we have a long enough cord to run a mic into the bathroom? And why? We've got reverb we can just put on. And like, well, it's not like that. It doesn't sound like that. Right. And how That's about very- the stairwell? They're yelling to each other. Yeah, let's do that, that background vocal in the stairwell. And like the guy's just like, threw up his hands and he's like, what do you think we have a studio for? 
<laughs> yeah, we're, we're, right. We're we're paying you, if I remember correctly. We we did pay him, so yeah. Shut up and record. The experience in recording the EP, uh, the Explorers Hole that came out, was in a studio with a Don Sternecker studio called Mixolydian, which uh, he has recorded probably most of everything, recorded everything that all the legitimate uh, tripes recordings. He recorded pretty much most of everything with Speed the Plow, recorded three or four Feelys albums, maybe more. I don't know. Has done a lot of mixing. And now in this age of Pro Tools, where we're able to do some stuff at home and during the lockdown, thankfully so, uh, we now got this great symbiosis with him where we, you know, we could record some tracks home, send it to him. He does the EQ. He does the cleaning up panning ideas, new mix ideas, sends it back. We add some overdubs. So it's become, I think many studios have had to go this route since the advent of Pro Tools and how big it is and how relatively user-friendly it is. So uh, it's a guy we've had a relationship with a really long time. Uh, At that point, recording that, he, you know, was strictly business. Bill and Glenn seemed to relish the idea of getting back behind a control board and having an engineer who could, you know, can you patch this all? To, you know, for them, I want this effect, and you know, and I want the mics here or there. Somebody who could do that. You didn't have to do it yourself. I mean, they weren't yeah. have, you know, getting back into a studio like that. So yeah, it was a great experience. I mean. Uh, learned a lot. I mean, for me, I was just there to soak things up. This is my first real experience in a real recording studio and right. just cool. to learn. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, let's move on to the next song, Rag Mama Rag. So uh, this song has been criticized often as being kind of nonsensical and satirical about a hapless country bumpkin who can't control his girlfriend. Uh, more importantly, what's, to wrong the credit- with that? what's wrong with that? Is that a criticism? No, I mean, I'm just saying that that that's what some people have said about this song. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't mind it personally if that's what it is. Um, more importantly, to the credit uh, to the credit of this album that we're discussing. Uh, this song, in my opinion, is the pinnacle of Alan Toussaint's con- contribution to the album and, mm-hmm. uh, and his horn parts. <clears throat> Great. Uh, I think we know the story of Alan Toussaint losing his charts on the way up to New York from New Orleans. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear I about that? I that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I had to like, write them on the spot. Uh, well, he had a few days. Uh, I think he, he traveled up, you know, maybe a week prior to the first show. And so he had a few days to, to, to try to work it back out, kind of write some new charts and try to like do the best he could with, uh, with a, a limited amount of time. Plus he mm-hmm. developed some flu, I think. So he was actually under the weather. He uh, actually lost his, 
he had lost his hearing after the first night. So, uh, yeah, they were really, really struggling uh, up to the days of the first performance. Well, he had he came up, however, last minute he came up with the right charts and had the right players. Yeah. Yeah. They may do very well. Right. Yeah. So uh, what has been one of the hardest performance situations you found yourself in? Hmm. Hardest. Uh, hardest. Probably, probably the two shows we did on um, Mountain Stage. Okay. Because um, while it's broadcast to 300 some stations around the country, a lot of them, it'll be on uh, tape, you know, but in West Virginia, it's live uh, throughout mm. West Virginia's public radio stations. Okay. And they, in the early years, which is when we were on the show in the 80s, uh, it was live, live. You know, it was like on air, sign goes up. Hi. Somebody Hi, how are you? Home. Well, <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you. Um, Thanks for joining us. So, so it was really live. I mean, you know, commercial breaks, well, which were PSAs or whatever, you know, everything was timed out. So there was no, you had to be on, you had a certain amount of time, right? you know, and there really wasn't any, you know, where you could cut a song because if you're doing three songs and they're like three and a half to four minutes each, and one of them, the middle song goes to five. You can't cut down the last song, but you can't get rid of that last song either because they have to fill that slot. It, you know, it's that kind of pressure. Mm, yeah. Which I had never experienced before. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a live concert or club date, you know, it starts. If somebody breaks a string, you take a little break whatever you know it's you've got sure. a little bit more control over it and this was like no control at all completely unforgiving just yeah very yeah. tight time constraints and so forth and and just the, the stage setup itself and you know this goes back again i'm saying like i think we played maybe 88 and 90 or something uh so their technology wasn't obviously what it is now so there you know a lot of baffles put up you know obviously the drums were all baffled hmm. most of the louder acoustic instruments were so while it's live and you're all gathered live on a stage you, you kind of you feel like you're in your own cubicle it's you know yeah and then there's all the time pressures so that that would be it okay yeah that's that does sound now sound nerve-wracking uh, live performance, like especially broadcast that was broadcast nationally, right? Uh, yeah, national. Like I said, nationally, they you know it was fed out from the NPR to all their stations. So, right. But in West Virginia, it was on their twenty public radio stations. It was live, live. live. Yeah, so yeah, that's a little approach it live. They've they've since changed their ways. Um, I'm I'm very close with them. I do a lot of work down in West Virginia. In fact, I'm going down there in a couple of weeks. Okay. Um, so they've changed their ways. They they they're taking pauses now. They're they're kind of <coughs> excuse me, pollen count. Uh, you know, they're breaking up the show now a little bit, and so they're able to put it put a cleaner product together without sure. you know all that stress and the hurrying and 
Yeah, yeah. Make it a little bit more forgiving, give you a little bit of a little buffer time. Yeah, a little more user friendly. <clears throat> sure. All right. So uh, the next song would be the song of your choice, The Genetic Method. It's very impressive. Yeah, I mean it. It it seems that clearly there are there are some thought out elements to it in terms of the themes he introduces, some of the old songs and stuff that he'll play a line or two of. Um, but I really have to think it was very improvisational, um, and you know. To me, it, it, it explores the whole range of sounds that the Lowry has, which, uh, again, was that big symphonic version he was using, you know, as opposed to a B3 or something. Right. Uh, the Lowry actually, you know, the two separate keyboards uh, have separate and distinct outputs for the upper and lower keyboard. So to get some of that kind of wild kaleidoscopic sound, he was running each keyboard through separate Leslie speakers oh. that he can control the speed at which they were running and could set them at different speeds when he wanted it to really have that whirlwindy kind of sound. Right. Or it could sync them up a little bit better when he wanted, you know, a more stable kind of chord sound. So, and, and that goes out throughout the whole damn song. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much a, an improvisational kind of jam solo by Garth. Um, yeah. It, it, it reminds me, I was just listening to it recently in prep for this and like, yeah, man, do, do we want to talk about this? Cause I'm sure for a lot of people, some of the early people I listened to the album with, you know, when it first came out, were like, oh man, does this ever end? You know, all right, an eight minute keyboard solo, maybe it, you know, yeah. that age wasn't to everybody's taste. Sure. But listening back to it, it reminded me an awful lot of um, Van Dyke Park's keyboard styling. And certainly, I don't know, Van Dyke, I don't think he ever used an organ or piano and other arrangements and other instruments, but. The same sort of um, fragmented yet holding to get sloppy, almost coming apart at the seams, yet then resolving in a whimsical way. Right. And I think of them as very kind of similar in terms of as keyboard artists. Yeah. All right. Well, so I mean, Dyke wrote a lot of lyrics and, you know, wrote his own songs, that, but both music and, and lyrics and stuff. But uh, their, mm -hmm. their musical attitude has a really similar, a real similarity to me. Yeah. All right. Well, well so tell me this. What's the wildest thing you've ever done with your instrument? Wildest thing I've ever done with my instrument? I've never done shit like guitar players do, like <laughs> smashing them on the stage or anything no, no, like no. that. Like, um, like what's the song? Um, what's that band song? Uh, 
the the drunkard's dream if i ever did see one what's that song called uh, it's on the second album well either way the the point being is that <clears throat> that that song where he takes uh garth takes his i i, I guess is his lowry or the or a cl- clavinet is it and he puts it through a wah-wah pedal and that gets oh, that really yeah. weird Oh, that was on one of the songs that did that was not in the original release, but was on one of these reissues of Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they played it, but you know, it's one of their most popular songs off the second album. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, he used the Wawa pedal and a clavinet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, have you ever done anything? Right. That's it. It's killing me that I don't know it. Uh it's up on Cripple Creek. Up on Cripple Creek, of course. They're one of their most famous songs. Yes. Uh, and I kind of, I don't know, for the obvious reasons, I always thought it was some kind of juice harp. But, I mean, amplified in some weird way. Mm-hmm. Right. Never bought, you know, not till I heard the rumor somewhere years ago, like that it was a clavinet with a wah-wah pedal. Like, oh, yeah, makes total sense. <laughs> right. So have you ever done anything wild like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, in studio situations, sure, yeah, sure. sure. You know, uh, running tracks backwards, um, you know, running running keyboard parts backwards, um, you know, extreme panning. If you've got, you know, a Garth-like sort of kaleidoscopic part in a song, you know, extreme intermittent panning, um, you know, mostly effects. Um, yeah, Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've never, I haven't worked with like treated piano or anything like that. There are a lot more opportunities for guitar players and maybe other instrumentalists to manipulate their instruments. Um, right. Although, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great people working in prepared piano. I love Conlon and Caro's piano roll pieces and you know, but I've never taken something apart and uh done something weird with it uh, yeah okay other than See, effects th- this is what happens when i have to go off the cuff on a song that i'm not prepared for <laughs> i grasp at straws well uh look we're going to move on to the last song that we're going to cover the weight Uh, I think that this song is fittingly named uh, for for such a heavy song. Mm, yeah, yes. um, has definitely struck a chord with me ever since I've you know been introduced to it back in my twenties. Uh, so another one of those like just beautiful songs that uh, Robertson has kind of come up with. Um, so yeah, Robertson has been quoted as saying about this song, uh, "The weight is." Uh, it was this very simple thing. Someone says, uh, listen, would you do this? Would you do me this favor? So the guy goes and one thing leads to another and it's like, holy shit, what's this turned into? Um, can you think of any song you've written that could take on that analogy? Ah, 
That's starts really... off like a simple idea, something that you just kind of like didn't even necessarily mean to get into, and all of a sudden it developed into something, blossomed into something much more abstract or complicated. Well, I'll tell you or... something that I don't know if it's similar enough, but it, it is it was a bit of a weird revelation recently. Uh, I told you we're we're recording two more of the really old tribe songs that we never got around to doing properly. Mm -hmm. And one of them is called It's Never All Right. And this is a bit of a tangent from your question, but um, we only, the, the, the Speed the Plow did a version of the song, I forget we called it something else, Never, Never You Mind, Never You uh, something, we had a different title. Never mind. Uh, but I found the original lyrics for it, which is kind of what propelled us to kind of go back and, and listen to it and consider it. And I, it had been in a different key originally. And, you know, it's got sort of heady lyrics to the verses, fall back on the faithful order of things when the time and something moved differently and it kind of goes on on a sort of esoteric level through the verses, mm -hmm. trying to put nice couplets together, basically, which I don't know, I fall back on a lot as a songwriter, but the choruses, um, it was never all right. Uh, not even on a quiet night, not even when your friends were there, not even when I said it was. Hmm. And I started thinking about it after a while. We were working on it. It took, you know, it was a couple of weeks after we started working on it. And I'm like, I, I was doing a, a scratch vocal for it. I'm like, what the hell was I talking about here? You know, uh, it, it, I don't know. It had a bit of a me too thing a spark in my head about, you know, I knew, you know, people in town, people, some people I went to high school with, you know, going back to a different time, um, guys, some guys didn't treat women well at all. Um, and I'm not even suggesting anything physical or, or, or worse or sexual, um, just didn't treat women well. Right. Uh, and obviously those other, uh, other things are born out of that kind of mindset. And I, I, ever since this kind of occurred to me, it's like, you know, been listening back to it as we add other overdubs and stuff. And it's like really kind of in my brain now, like, sort of trying to think, was there some specific event that prompted those words? Mm -hmm. And I, I could think of things, um, you know, guys who just didn't treat their women right. I mean, sure. There's always been a lot of women in general, I mean, not even to say their women, women didn't know how to interact, uh, you know, came right. from a different place and, so there was a bit of a thing where I didn't know what I was getting into doing this and maybe hooking it back up to your question. It, it has sort of metastasized as something else. Yeah. Something bigger, bigger than the, whatever the original idea was. 
Yeah, and I don't know whether I should be happy that I don't remember if it was fired by a specific event that happened. Yeah. Because it's that's pretty indicting. Yeah, but there, there's also so much time that has passed now since, you know, you first originally came up with those lyrics to to now where you're working on it again and obviously you have now since finished that song, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so where yes. where has the song song gone from that from that uh, chorus, let's call it. Um, I no, I maintain the original lyrics and right. that original chorus. So, what is the song about, though? Uh, some event that happened that was maybe preventable that shouldn't have happened that continues to happen, perhaps among okay. us. Uh, and it's just never all right. I mean, it wasn't all right then. It's not all right now. Hmm. You know? And there's never been a resolve to it. Not even when your friends are there. Not even on a quiet night. Not even though I said it was. Sure. Uh, yeah. I. Okay. Now, well, what song is this? Can you share that information or no? Uh, it's called, it, it was never all right. And it'll be coming out sometime this summer. Okay. Two well, more that's... songs. That That'll be something to look forward to, I guess, because uh, it's it's very maybe, intriguing now that I know this little snippet about it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll figure something more out about it as we get it next. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess I sure, sure. I mean, I'm just kind of intrigued to hear it now in its entirety and kind of like uh, kind of put a. It's kind of like putting a face with a name, you know. Indeed. All right, well, John, I I think we've done it. I, I I'd like to say thank you for for taking the time uh, to speak with me about this album and uh, about your history and music and a little bit about the tripes and the, and the record music for neighbors. Uh, is there anything else kind of outcome? Oh, is there anything else coming up immediately that you, uh, that you have to promote or that's uh, of, of mention? No, just look for a date on the release of the vinyl of music for neighbors in October. Um, so yeah, it's uh, looking forward to that very much because just the habit on that format, um, Pravda was gracious enough to offer us a gatefold to, to, to package it in, which to me, after 20, 30 years of designing nothing over a CD size, maybe with a booklet in it, mm-hmm. not just get back to 12 inch design, but a 12 by 24 uh, yeah, you know, canvas. It was you know, it was a little daunting getting back to working in that size again. Sure. Well, so uh, um, without without giving anything away, uh, what what can can you describe a little bit of what the gatefold will will hold? Because it seems that the all of those bands seem to have a very particular look to to the their albums. You know, the the tripes, the um, the first EP. Yeah. Music for Neighbors, even some of the Feelys records are, have like this very similar kind of like look to them. Yeah, this, this, I mean, it employs the same cover photo, which was the original cover photo from the Explorers Hold EP. Um, the um, reissue, uh, the, the compilation that Acute Records did like 10 or 12 years ago, um, because it encompassed music from so many different uh, formations of the band. I created this composite photo for the cover, like a studio shot that had every per like all seven or eight of us that were in the band at any given point in okay. the photo. And 
for this one, I want to go back to the original photo of the seven of the eventual members, the ones who recorded, who were in the recording studio. Because uh, we did a treatment on the photo when it was originally printed as an EP. And I, excuse me, I never liked it. Mm-hmm. I never liked the treatment. It, it did not print well. The treatment was okay. It just didn't print well. And I thought this is an opportunity to go back and write that wrong. So hmm. I did my own treatment of the cover photo of the seven of us. So um, that's there. There are a whole bunch of other photos, you know, given the, the gatefold aspect of it. So there are a bunch of different archival photos, you know, documenting our various formations. Um, all the same music that was on the CD release and then a download card with a lot of new stuff that has not been on the CD yet or anywhere. Right. Okay. That sounds great. Well, uh, I will try to link people to, to the website to find that when, uh, whenever it's ready in October, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's anticipated. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure we're on track. We've been on track with all the steps so far. I listened to the test pressing about a month ago. It sounded really wonderful. Again, to, to hear this stuff back on vinyl again is a whole different thing. Yeah, really that's nice great. Thing. Yeah, very nice. And then considering you've got test pressings, that means you're, yeah, you're moving along. So you're, you're probably going to be on track. That's yeah, great. Yes, we will. So people can go to provdemusic.com and find out all about it sounds great and the tripes are on facebook and twitter and the tripes new jersey bandcamp.com we're all over the place okay i'll find all the links and i'll supply them for everybody john it's been a pleasure speaking with you i really appreciate it yeah i enjoyed it james it was nice taking a deep dive on something like this i was a little apprehensive about it didn't know how deep the dive would get but i'm glad you did Okay. Well, I'm glad that uh, that I worked it out well for you and that uh, that you enjoyed it. Yep. It was my pleasure. Very much. Same here. All right. Thanks, John. Have a good one. Take care. Vinyl and Vision is a psychic static production theme song written and performed by Jeff Robbins of 123 Astronauts.